From the Psych Hub Podcast Network, you're listening to You Ask, We Answer. Hi, and welcome to the You Ask, We Answer podcast. I'm Marjorie Morrison, your host, and I'm also the CEO and co-founder of Psych Hub. In this podcast, I ask the most common mental health questions searched online, and I get them answered by world-renowned experts. This podcast is a co-production between Psych Hub and the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry and is made possible by HCA Healthcare. If you'd like to submit a question or topic, please do so by emailing us at podcasts at Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of You Ask, We Answer. Today, we're going to be talking about obsessive compulsive disorder, otherwise known as OCD. The pandemic has taken a toll on all of us, but it has been particularly challenging for many of us with OCD. In today's episode, we're going to speak with a leading expert on OCD about what the disorder is, how to best live with it, and how to help those around you with it. Today, we have a really exciting guest for you, um, the brilliant Dr. Rachel Ginsberg. She serves as the assistant director at Columbia University Clinic for Anxiety and Related Disorders in Westchester and the assistant quality director of the Department of Psychiatry Faculty Practice Organization. She's an assistant professor of medical psychology in psychiatry at Columbia University Irving Medical Center and specializes in the evaluation and treatment of adolescents and work with mood, anxiety, and related disorders. Dr. Ginsberg is trained in evidence-based treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, exposure and response prevention, acceptance and commitment therapy, and interpersonal therapy. And she's worked with a variety of settings, including pediatric and adult clinics, as well as partial hospital and inpatient hospital settings. Dr. Ginsburg is passionate about finding novel and creative ways to personalize and innovate evidence-based treatments. And so I know all of our listeners are in for a treat because we always like to talk about evidence-based interventions and these treatments, and we've been spending a lot of time talking about ways to make them more personalized for people. So I really feel like Dr. Ginsburg has like the perfect background for us. Let's just start with the basics. What is OCD? Obsessive compulsive disorder is a mental health condition that's characterized by both obsessions and compulsions. So obsessions are unwanted thoughts or images or impulses that you experience frequently that are very upsetting or distressing and you try and shake them. You have this really, really strong urge to get rid of these thoughts um, and and associated images or impulses, but it feels they feel so compelling and so distressing and they're really hard to shake. Compulsions, which are also known as rituals, are are behaviors or sometimes more covert mental behaviors that we do to neutralize the anxiety or the obsessions. So compulsions or rituals serve the function of helping people feel better in the moment, that is quieting the obsessions temporarily, but unfortunately make the obsessions much more frequent and intense and last longer in the long term. So this one's kind of a personal interest of mine too. because I, I'm sure that I have a version of it. And I've always, you know, kind of probably had this. And my dad was a psychiatrist. And he used to say that some people have like a big O, little C, or like a little O, big C. And so I wonder if maybe you could talk about how 
some people might have more obsessions or compulsions and how that all fits in. Sure. That's a great question and an important concept. So if you have a, a big O, little C, right, that means that you're predominantly preoccupied by the mental uh, part of the, of, of the condition. So you're spending hours a day, whether it's consecutive hours or, you know, just pockets throughout the day, overthinking, replaying things in your head. A lot of it has to do with doubting yourself or your experiences, worrying about the future, worrying about something you might have done in the past and getting stuck in a cycle where it's you feel like you're you're not in your life, but you're very much living in your head. The reason that when you have pure O OCD or more of the obsessional type, it can be somewhat harder to treat in the sense that it's it hijacks you and it takes over. And so you have to be able to own the thoughts and figure out how much of the time you're spending each day stuck in your thoughts to be able to work on them and work through them and process the core fears that lie behind the obsessions. If you have the big C kind of obsessive compulsive disorder, compulsion meaning like you spend more of your time doing the rituals or activities to help you feel good, less of the time actually worrying. You can spend time telling yourself like it's going to be okay or trying to undo a thought or doing type like some type of repetitive behavior, you know, so you're more focused on getting relief than you're focused than you are stuck in the thoughts. So it's like such a big concept. And and I think one of the reasons why I really believe our listeners are going to be really interested in this is because it's OCD is like a word that's thrown out often. And so I I always think about like the obsessions as like ruminations. And my my brother always used to have this joke and he'd call it like his ruminating hat. And he'd be like, I got to take my ruminating hat off because I could just get stuck in this thinking about something, obsessing about something over and over and over again. And then, of course, we see in the movies things where, like, a very compulsive people, you know, will do these very ritualistic things. I, I'd love to have you kind of explain this to us in lay people's term, a spectrum, if you will, of OCD, and is there elements of it that are helpful? How, do, how does one know when it becomes helpful and, and not? So that's a great question because I think it speaks to the main um, differentiating factor between someone who has, let's say, you know, obsessive compulsive like behaviors versus somebody who really suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder. What distinguishes the two is we want to ask, is it ego syntonic or ego dystonic? So ego syntonic, meaning that you know, like when someone says, oh, I'm so OCD, or I spent the whole day organizing my room, or, oh, I have to sit in this spot, it's my good luck spot, or I have to wear this shirt, you know, I everything goes well when I wear this shirt, right? Versus, so egosyntonic, meaning like, you know, it, it helps me feel good, it doesn't cause me distress, choosing it, right? Ego dystonic, which is different, like to, to your point about like your brother and his rumination hat, which I, which I, I kind of love calling it that, it helps diffuse from it or externalize it in a way by thinking of it in that way. Ego dystonic thoughts are, I really don't like that I spend all this time in my head, right? Or spend all this time in my head and spend all this time doing these habits, so to speak. It really bothers me. I wish I could break free of this. I can't stand that I'm living by these rules. I can't stand that I'm having all these thoughts that I can't shake. It causes me a lot of tension and angst. And I wish I didn't have that. So in terms of the OCD spectrum, I think a lot of people have rituals or tendencies or do things like read an email again and again when it's high stakes, right? We all do things to help quell our anxiety in the moment. And even though they have an obsessive compulsive flavor to them, they do not necessarily mount to or become problematic in any way. 
Whereas someone with obsessive compulsive disorder, really it takes, so it becomes an absorbing state and they wish they can feel free of it. That's the differentiator. I'm happy you brought up the ego syntonic and the ego dystonic. I was going to actually bring it up and pretend that that was like my one smart thing that I was going to say on this. <laughs> <laughs> and you be, I should have said it on the question, but you, be, that way. <laughs> it's all I got here. But, but I do think it's like really important to think about this sense of getting the relief, like you said, or this, this, is it kind of getting in the way of your everyday functioning? What about other people? What about like, how you're maybe you're doing it and it's okay for you, but then the people around you it's not okay for? Is that a common thing where people hear it from someplace else? I love that question. Yeah, it definitely causes a lot of problems in people's lives, especially interpersonally. So, but if you dig down deep in, in working with someone with OCD, usually even if they protect the overthinking or protect the rituals, if you dig down deep enough, it usually causes them a lot of despair and a lot of angst and frustration. So it will, it will affect family members and loved ones. They'll oftentimes, some examples would be they'll become frustrated when, you know, people with OCD will seek a lot of reassurance or need a lot of accommodation or do a lot of confessing. And they'll spend a lot of time, again, in that absorbing state where they'll be sometimes very focused on the self at the expense of the other unintentionally. But it's usually, if you really boil it down, a lot of the rules and rituals that people do are, are in an effort to protect themselves or to prevent harm from coming to people they love or, you know, to prevent them from ruining their future or, or, you know, so it's usually to prevent a feared negative consequence. When it comes to other people giving them feedback, sometimes family members, friends, loved ones get really frustrated, you know, naturally because there's a rigidity to OCD and it's, it's really hard. You want your loved ones to be flexible. You want to be able to provide them with some relief, but you also start to get this feeling. Am I accommodating this? Are we talking in circles? Are we really getting anywhere? And so it is helpful for family members, loved ones to step in and say, I think this is your OCD brain taking over. Like, what can we do to, to pivot away from this or to help you, to help you choose to live a little bit differently? Even if right now in this moment, it feels like this is the only way of surviving. Does it get in, does it get tough, like for those, the people around them? I mean, do they get frustrated? I guess, you know, you, you treat this issue. Is it usually someone else is bringing someone in or is it a person saying I've can't, I've had enough or is it a little bit of both? Yeah. So I would say with OCD, thankfully, a lot of people seek treatment on their own. You know, it's nice that when you Google OCD, you see how promising the treatments are. It's my favorite thing to treat in the world. It's just, you can only be optimistic about it. I think, you know, around 75% of people respond to treatment. It's so effective. It's, there's such realistic hopefulness in it. So a lot of people will seek treatment on their own. Sometimes though, sometimes, you know, spouses or loved ones or parents, or, you know, will say, okay, this is, this is getting to be too much. This is taking over. Look how it's interfering with your life. And they'll do some prompting. And those families, members, and loved ones need reassurance too, that this is really a treatment that works. And helping them find pathways to helping the person suffering with OCD is, is pretty remarkable when you can focus on it in a concrete way. So you bring up treatment and that's exciting 70%. That's actually amazing. So let's talk about that. What are some treatments and how do you go about treating someone? Yeah. So the gold standard treatment for OCD is called exposure and response prevention or exposure and ritual prevention. And what the treatment boils down to is helping helping individuals with OCD gradually learn to face their fears in a way where they're inviting in, uh, there's a willingness to invite in some of their discomfort and anxiety 
with the goals of a helping them learn that, you know, the things that they were very much afraid of either don't happen or if they do happen, they can actually tolerate the circumstances. So oftentimes it's like you, you help people kind of test their hypotheses about the world. They test these rules that OCD is kind of like ingraining in them. You flip the rules on their head, so to speak, and you help people like really learn through action that, hey, I don't have to live by these rules. I can feel so much better. You also help them build, the second part of it is building a fear tolerance, a willingness to tolerate uncertainty. Like I don't need to always feel that sense of completion or that sense of, or that, you know, that I don't have to cling to finding certainty because it will only be short lived. So you help people learn in treatment, right? How to resist those rituals that are very, very, very much like a short band-aid on the situation, resist the rituals and learn that even without doing the rituals, I feel uh, I get better. I feel so much better. These thoughts don't scare me anymore. I can be bored of all of them and I can live a much more flexible life without living by this playbook. I love it because it kind of comes from a positive place. It's not like it comes from this negative, oh, you have this and, but more of, no, actually you can go, you can retrain yourself to, to believe that the way that you're scripting it is no longer effective. And that must just be so liberating for people. Definitely is. And to your point, I think there's been a movement over the past few years, at least I've experienced this anecdotally. Some people like to think of, okay, think of OCD as this bully or this monster in your head or this, you know, whatever it is, like something that undermines you. I prefer to think of it. And in working with so many patients who've responded beautifully to treatment, I like to think of it more as, okay, this is an overprotective part of you. There's this overprotective part of you, this anxious best friend who has this whole set of rules who's always like sending you all these false signals and constant notifications that you're trying to silence. And here's a different way of responding to that. It's got to be a really interesting process. So going back to like how we started about how you also, you like to use evidence-based practices and you also like to kind of do some personalization. Are there some, and we talked about some of the ones, ACT and CBT, um, interpersonal therapy too, that, that you use how do you decide when someone comes in what which one to use? Great question. Almost always, I will integrate acceptance and commitment therapy into exposure and ritual prevention treatment because exposure and ritual prevention treatment is highly effective, but it's scary. Like asking people to kind of let their guard down and slowly but but very actively also face their fears can feel really, really overwhelming. You feel extremely vulnerable and it's hard to even trust that this is going to work. When you integrate acceptance and commitment therapy into exposure work, you're helping people change their relationship to the obsessions, right? You're helping them um, expand their ability to embrace the obsessions without feeling the need to control them or get rid of them or escape them or white knuckle through them. So you're really helping them, I say, like embrace and make space. You're helping them make space for the things that they're so desperately trying to get rid of and avoid. And in shifting your relationship to the obsessions or to your fears, it's you really free yourself up and feel much better and much less scared when new symptoms surface or it becomes like a game of whack-a-mole. And you really trust in your ability to respond effectively to the obsessions without taking them so seriously, which is often what actually maintains OCD. Wow. I I could see the way you describe it, that it all would make sense that someone, you know, is able to and I guess if you have some small successes at the beginning. That gives people confidence that if they keep working at it, they're going to get more successes with it. And then you're kind of, it's basically like giving you new new skills that then you have that you can just kind of carry on in your own life as I, I would imagine with anything, 
as things get more stressful and traumatic in life that, you know, these types of symptoms pop up more. And so there you're kind of like learning. You, you can pull back into your skill set. What about medication? Do people use medication for it? Yes. So the first line treatment for more mild symptoms is usually exposure and ritual prevention. And also, you know, exposure and ritual prevention can some as a treatment itself can be very helpful for cases that are not at a point that are causing so much distress. For moderate to severe symptoms, we we typically recommend a combined treatment. So that's med, um, you know, exposure and ritual prevention and pharmacotherapy or and medication together combined. Both of those treatments, exposure, ritual prevention, and combined treatment, that's exposure work with medication, are better than just medication alone. But all of them help. It's encouraging. So that goes back to sort of like a personalized approach, but using evidence-based practice. Exactly. So we, you know, we hear about this quite a bit in the in the media and stuff like that. Are there some myths and facts that people have about OCD that may or may not be true? Yeah, I think that the the number one myth is like challenging the image of the Hollywood version of OCD. And the Hollywood version of OCD, as we all know, is that OCD centers around contamination and involves a lot of hand washing and an hour's worth of rituals um, to decontaminate yourself. Or we see in Hollywood a lot of symmetry-related obsessions and compulsions, having to have things a certain way, moving a cup three times in one direction, three times in another direction. Those are really legitimate subtypes of OCD, but there are so many more subtypes of OCD and those only make up a small portion of them. So I think a lot of times OCD is not caught well or effectively. So many clients I've worked with seek treatment and they're in various kinds of treatment for years and they don't necessarily get the help that they need, even with great intentions on the part of therapists, but it's often just missed or misdiagnosed unless it takes on some of the more obvious forms. So that's the most important, I'd say, myth to to recognize and challenge. That was a great point. And now you led me to another question you bring up about how some people can have it at childhood. Where does this stem from? Is it, are you, is it hereditary? Are people coming into it because their families had it? Or is it something that happens as we grow up? It's a combination of biology and environmental stressors. So typically you're loaded for it. Like it truly is a neurobiologic disease and it becomes biologically active Oftentimes when the environment, like, for example, a stressor or development, you know, or neurochemical changes set it off, I'd say. So sometimes parents will say to me in working with kids and adolescents, sometimes will say, oh, no, did this cause it? Did this cause it? I wish I had done something differently. If only we had avoided this. And typically I'll say, don't place any blame anywhere. This is totally something that is biological. And at some point, stress would have kicked it off. It's really workable, though. Yeah, like I said, I I have it in my family. And so I think I've just always kind of had it and tried to make it work for my advantage. I think for me, and I'll share, you know, personal sort of antidote is that I'm always thinking like 10 steps ahead of problems that will come up. Like I'm always like, okay, well, if this happens and this happens and that happens, then I go down that whole road. But, you know, being a entrepreneur and a CEO, I think it helps me because it's like forcing me to problem solve a lot of ways. In some regards, I think it's helpful. But like when you said that comment about reading an email so many times before sending it, I'm so guilty of that exact scenario. So it's like you nailed it. Or even 
I, you know, I, when I used to do private practice, I, I couldn't tell you how many times couples would come in and one of the complaints was the dishwasher. It's like, I'm finally helping. And then she goes in and rearranges a dishwasher. And, you know, and inside I would have the same thing. Like, no, 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 that's not how you put the cup. So, I mean, I think that there's an, or, or like waking up every day and making my bed and all of the pandemic when, you know, no one ever came over and no one ever saw me. I had the ritualistic of getting up, working out, taking a shower, putting on makeup, getting dressed only to walk past the kitchen to go to the office to work and then go at the end of the day and go put my sweats on. So it's weird. Like I, that's impressive though. You know, like having that internal order. Right. But ultimately I think we also, the biggest thing that cuts across all treatments is building flexibility. So it's like, if I didn't do those things or I didn't do them in a particular way, or I skipped one or changed things, could I tolerate it? Or is it going to kind of cut through the day under like kind of undermine my sense of self that day or cause me like continuous angst. So that's the difference, you know, because routines and internal order can be incredibly useful. Those are typically the treatments for depression involve getting into a routine and a rhythm and social behavioral activation, having a certain set of activities that you do that help you, you know, feel a sense of mastery over your environment, really healthy things. The difference is, is if I didn't do it a certain way or, you know, if I did it differently or if I skipped over something, would I feel off the whole day, incomplete, or be afraid that something might go wrong for me professionally or personally? Yeah, I think for our listeners, that's a really important thing to hear, right? Because it is this spectrum. And I think we just have to all work at it, things not being so black and white and times in our lives. And maybe sometimes it's more of an issue than other times for for whatever reason. Now, we talked a little bit about how OCD can affect a relationship and those around you. But what about, since I'm, you know, just airing my dirty laundry here, but what about the workplace? <laughs> how how might it show up in work that could be beneficial or also could potentially be, be an issue? Sure. So in some people with OCD, I think some people are extra conscientious because perfectionism really maps on and loads heavily in people with OCD. So, you know, I think in some ways, it makes you a mega performer for certain people. In other ways, though, it contributes to a lot of avoidance, a lot of delay. Things can take a lot longer. There's a lot of checking and rechecking, a lot of reassurance. Sometimes it'll have a social component, like a lot of over-apologizing or like kind of worrying that you offended someone in a meeting or, you know, kind of like, so I think it can affect like mechanically, it can delay things because things are just take longer because rituals take longer, even the more covert ones take longer, like the rereading of emails or scripting things. But then also interpersonally, like if you feel like I call it sticky anxiety, like if you feel like someone just keeps asking the same question or checking on things too many times and it, it doesn't seem to click and they have a hard time moving on from things that that might be an example of, of how it can show up in the workplace. It's so cool. You have a sticky anxiety. Is some of these things like that either they are called that or have you just created some of these things and collected them along the way? Uh, so full disclosure, I would say that some of them I've definitely picked up along the way because people who, like therapists who treat OCD tend to be like roll up your sleeves, fun, goofy kind of people. You have to be, <laughs> you have to be like, you know, willing to really, really get messy and playful. At the same time, I will say, and I joke with my clients all the time, is like, I think, um, you know, I'm constantly generating new material, so to speak, <laughs> like love analogies. I think I'm a stand-up comedian <laughs> with poems every day, shortcuts every day, tricks and tips and everything. So it's like really fun work when it, when it goes from being really scary work to really fun, it happens quickly. 
And then you really, really get to kind of have a good time with it and find the humor in it. And it, it takes a lot of the sting out of it. So, so a lot of it is kind of, is a lot of it's coming up with my own little catchy phrases. Once you figure out how to capture it, it's so compelling. That is so amazing. And what a gift to everybody who comes in and gets to work with you because that's so much a part of this problem is that, you know, we're all so hard on ourselves as it is. So then you come in and then you, you know, if you come in with guilt of like, oh, I I can't fix this, but to be able to have a, a lens of some humor and have some fun around it. I think, I mean, what I could say, that's a, such a gift to everybody that, that comes in, comes into your office. I can only imagine how great that is. And, and it, have you seen it getting more pronounced or more prevalent? Did COVID do anything to it? I think anyone who would have had OCD would have it anyway. Right. But I think COVID definitely spiked it up for a lot of people because all of a sudden, in addition to their own set of rules, there's a whole new set of rules and it's, forcing us to tolerate so much uncertainty, which, right, the rules changed so frequently. And we all had to just tolerate our anxiety around it and still try and choose and live meaningful, productive lives. But we're living in fear, like all the time. So I would say, you know, in children and adolescents, I think that there is some data that it, it, it we saw like kind of like an, up, an uptick in it. But for the most part, I'd say anyone who would have had it We'll have it, you know, it might have just surfaced now as an environmental stressor. And for those people who are already in treatment for OCD, a lot of them reported, wow, you know, I, I've learned skills to your point earlier. I learned skills to tolerate this. I came prepared. Now the rest of the world knows what it feels like, but I know how to manage my anxiety probably better than the average person without OCD. Amazing. That's that's really good. So Another question now that you just mentioned it, you're sparking all these thoughts in me. Um, what about other like co-occurring conditions? Does it, is it common to see OCD with something else standalone? I'd say three out of four, you know, and three out of four people, I'm going to, I'm going to make an educated guess that it's, that there are com- comorbidities that it definitely presents with other anxiety and related disorders. So we'll usually see OCD with generalized anxiety. That means you're just like a warrior through and through and spend a lot of your time worrying, but it's not stretched logic. It's like things that everybody worries about just on steroids, right? Or we'll see it come along with depression. Typically, I would say secondary depression, not all the time, but meaning like I feel hopeless about having to suffer all the time and I'm right and I'm stuck in my head all the time and I'm not living my life and I've given up on a lot of opportunities and activities or it's distracting me. So it might cause depression, um, different phobias and yeah, hair pulling, skin picking kind of fit that spectrum too. Um, you know, like a lot of kind of obsessive and compulsive type type um conditions like that. So I'd say, yeah, there's usually a good amount of overlap. Like skin picking, like, like picking your cuticles, picking your cuticles, <laughs> exactly. Or picking at acne, picking your cuticles, picking at, yeah, different parts of your body skin, you know? And so that on, on the, the, the hallmark um, evaluation measure for OCD is called the Yale Brown obsessive compulsive scale. It's a great scale if anyone wants to look at it and just kind of see the overview of OCD. But on the Yale Brown obsessive compulsive scale, it does list like skin picking um, as an obsessive compulsive behavior. That's good. That's really good to know. What el- what other resources would you have for our listeners if they're curious and where might they be able to go to go find some? Sure. So the, the best resource is IOCDF. So that's the International OCD Foundation. It is an amazing treasure trove. 
And I don't say that lightly. It has everything on there and more and every type of OCD that you ever think like, if you ever think, oh, I'm the only one who suffered with this. They've written four articles about it already. They have so many resources for groups and the most and, and therapists in your area. And that's to me the most important piece of it is that they have a directory. So if you're looking for a therapist who's trained in exposure and ritual prevention, you just type in your zip code. And I've used that as a resource for so many people who, you know, who've lived outside of this area. It's really wonderful. Oh, that's great. All right. So we've got it. Well, before we get to our final part where I'm going to ask you like the top three tips, are there things that we didn't cover? Anything that you want to share that you think are important for our listeners to hear and know about OCD? I would say the most important takeaway is that there's definitely hope. And I know that sometimes people feel that they've tried all sorts of treatments and that, you know, they've tried to find their sense of, you know, try to find peace of mind in some way. But I'd say this treatment really is so effective and and it's encouraging to internalize that. And I'd say, you know, the most important quote to me in this treatment is by Viktor Frankl. So Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust and a huge professional role model. Um, that I've like really, really integrated into all my work. And he, it sounds a little mechanical, but it's helpful. He said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our ability to choose. And in that choice lies our growth and our freedom. I love that. Right? It's so powerful. Just like, to me, like it feels new every day. I think it's so important to remember that if you can create that space between what's really, really affecting you and your response to it, you have a whole new life ahead of you. You have so much room for growth and freedom. And if you can make room for something, it takes up a lot less space in your life. So I, I think that's the most important thing to internalize, like trust in your ability to, to, to develop a new response to some of the things that are overwhelming you or, or scaring you. I love that. I'm going to have to go look it up or write that down. Psychub uh, or my co-founder is Patrick Kennedy former congressman, and he is in recovery and works really hard at his recovery, but he talks a lot about intrusive thoughts. And I feel like that that's kind of, that's like take that minute between acting, if you will. Exactly, yes. And, and, and we all have intrusive thoughts. I mean, it is amazing how quickly we could be, you know, set down one path and have some thought and be like, okay, like I, like I you know, I'm not going to go on the Peloton today. Just for whatever the reason, because that minute I was like, ah, I don't feel like it. But it's so automatic, right? It's so automatic. And if you could just slow your response to the automatic thought, you have a whole world. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. The You Ask, We Answer podcast presented by HCA Healthcare brings you answers to the most common intimate real-life questions patients ask. HCA Healthcare, a leading provider of healthcare services, uses its more than 32 million annual patient encounters to advance science, improve patient care, and save lives. With 182 hospitals and approximately 2,000 sites of care, HCA Healthcare's behavioral health experts are committed to reducing mental health stigma and helping patients access the resources they need when and where they need it. All right. So now I would love to hear your top tips, maybe your top five tips for how to cope with OCD. Game on. The most important five tips that I would encourage someone with OCD to tap into are, number one, ask yourself every day, would I rather live my life with risk or have to live my life like this? So that's a really critical question. Would I rather live my life with some risk 
or have to live my life confined to this internal set of rules and have to yield to my anxiety. The second big piece that I would factor in is asking yourself, am I approaching or avoiding? So you really want to ask, am I avoiding things or finding a way to escape my anxiety or temporarily get rid of my anxiety? Because that's usually going to aggravate my anxiety in the long term. Can I approach this? Can I make space for this? Which leads to the third skill, which we touched on earlier, which is if you can make space, if you can make room for this, it will take up less space. So if you can make room for something scary and you can really own it and stare it in its face, right, and talk through it and process it emotionally, it will take up less space in your life than trying to restrict something or keep something at bay. Another really important skill, I call it make it worse to make it better. And I definitely recommend doing this like with a therapist as your sideline coach, but make it worse to make it better is we, the instinct with OCD or with obsessions is like to make, you know, you want reassurance and you want to get rid of this feeling or sensation or thought. But if you can actually exaggerate the thought and, you know, kind of put bells and whistles on the thought and really take it to take it, take it far, like take it to your core fear take it to a place where like I compare it to nesting dolls, like kind of peel back the layers of it and dig down deep. A lot of times making it worse to make it better really, really gets rid of the fear or the distress itself. So, and I think I'm up to number four or five. I'm trying to remember now, but I would say, um, I call it, I made this up, stay with the thought, play with the thought. So this is where you want to use humor. So stay with the thought that you're afraid of and play with the thought. So if you're afraid that because you sent, you made a typo in your email and all of a sudden you're catastrophizing that everyone's going to think that you're not smart and you're going to get fired, just as like more of an everyday example, like stay with the thought, play with the thought. So maybe agree with the thought in this case, which nobody ever thinks to do. We play it out in a worry-based way, but we, we typically don't say, okay, so I am going to get fired. Everyone's going to think that I'm so incompetent. And they're all talking about me in that room right now. And, you know, people are just zooming into that typo and I'm going to have to find a new job. If you can flip that script, it changes the valence of the thought a lot. And you can actually, that's where you have room for humor. So if you can find a way, <laughs> if you can find a way to make it worse, to make it better and stay with the thought and play with the thought, a lot of the time it will really, really help take some of the sting or the gravity out of the thought. Tip number five, uh, I would call it ride the wave. Um, and basically the thing to keep in mind is with anxiety and definitely including with OCD treatment, if you take a look at this wave, the thing to really, really start to believe and coach yourself to believe is that the more you're willing to confront something that's scary or overwhelming and ride it out rather than give into your rituals, the better you're going to feel and the less anxiety provoking it's going to be. So the first time you do something anxiety provoking, like the first time, let's say you're willing to, to jinx yourself in the future. So someone with OCD might have magical thinking or superstitious beliefs. And they'll say something like they're terrified of getting into a car crash. They'll say as an exposure, like I'll never get into a car crash. And that's absolutely terrifying to say, and they want to neutralize it right away. And they want to undo that thought. The first time you say it, or the first time you go into the car and say that thought out loud, your anxiety is going to spike up right up here. And then everyone feels like, okay, let me just, let me just jump right off here. Let me just, okay, uh, uh, you know, and neutralize the thought, neutralize the thought, have a safety thought or pull to the side of the road. But if you're willing to sweat out the thought and say, all right, I might get into a car accident. I'll never know. Right. And you kind of ride that wave out without giving yourself reassurance. The next time, right. Your anxiety is lower. The next time you get in the car. 
And then if you're willing to do the exposure again, face your fears again without giving yourself reassurance or doing all sorts of rituals to help you feel safe, your anxiety will go down again and again and again. And most people tell me at the end of this that I need a flat layer here because this oftentimes you won't even feel this much anxiety. So I'd say trust the wave and lean into the wave and don't paddle away from it. That would be tip number five. This is amazing. You're so good. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Love this work. I'm lucky. So the next one is for helping someone else. The five tips for helping someone in your life who has OCD would include, number one, I'd say always remind them how much you love them, but set clear boundaries. So you can say when somebody is in an OCD trance, let's call it, or they're really stuck when their brain is stuck. That's what we, that's the language we use. You can say, I love you. Your brain is stuck. I love you. This is your OCD. Okay. I love you. This is your OCD brain. So you want to use language to help, help remind them that you really care about them and love them. You're not just frustrated with them and right. Helping them help them diffuse from their OCD. Again, externalize it. Like, Hey, something's taking over here. OCD just hijacked your brain. I want you back. So that's number one, right? I love you and help them build awareness of what's happening in the moment. Number two, Sometimes OCD is so compelling. So a second tip for for working with someone, uh, a loved one who has OCD is helping them do a system reboot, I'll call it. If someone is stuck, help them do a system reboot. Say, I can see your brain is stuck, right? I can see you're really overwhelmed. I can see this is totally taking over. What can I help you do to reboot? Do you want to take a walk? Do you want to watch a TV show? Do you want to cook something? Should we blast some music? And just like, you know, you really want to get creative with like, don't try and attend to the content of what they're really anxious about, like don't over attend to that because you're going to get stuck in a vicious cycle and catharsis in and of itself is actually not helpful because you can't always problem solve. And sometimes just saying your fears or worries or doubts over and over again makes them a lot worse. It reinforces the cycle and then your brain really, really gets stuck in the loop. Instead say, how can I help you do a system reboot? A third um, skill to work with when you're, when you have a loved one or a friend or with OCD is is basically to ask them for permission to help. So people don't want to be told what to do. Like, right? Like none of us really like when we're struggling to be told like, well, why don't you just, well, why don't you just, right? Because we have, we typically have a good internal sense of self. Like we know like what the right thing is to do. Like, yeah, it's probably not great to keep entertaining this for hours, right? Or avoiding something, but we don't really want that. And if we do want that, we want it to be our choice. So don't impose on them. Like, hey, why don't you, you know, instead say, would, would you can ask them like, is it okay if I say, if I help you with something? Is it okay if I point something out? Is it okay, right? If I tell you something I'm noticing, that's a lot softer. And that softener really helps a lot because people with OCD typically have a lot of irritability and rigidity also, or it can be hard for them to feel understood. So always ask for permission. That'd be number three, permission to help. Number four would be, Remind them, I think, again, if there's willingness, right, remind them to try and use their therapy skills, but not in a way that's going to be overbearing. So ask them for language in advance. Say, when I notice that you're stuck in an OCD loop, is there something that you'd like for me to say or do that could be helpful? So let them tell you what's helpful. Don't just try and throw things out there that are going to maybe stick. Instead, let them tell you. And if they say, oh, you know what? My therapist had mentioned that, like, you know, like this, like, she used this skill or he used this skill and it really worked for me. Like it really helped me in that moment. And you can say, do you want me to say that in those stuck moments? And that can be, that can be really useful too. 
And number five, I'd say the fifth skill I'd use in working with uh, in, in, in helping a loved one uh, with OCD is validate just tons of validation. Like I know sometimes that cuts through the problem by 50%. Just saying, I can tell that your, your mind's torturing you right now. I can tell you're really, really struggling right now. I wish there was more that I can do to help. I know, right. That I know that oh, like, um, give it like re- providing too much reassurance is going to make you feel stuck. So I'm going to do, I'm going to do one and done. So one and done is like, I'll help you once or I'll answer once. Right. And then I'm not going to keep entertaining the OCD loop because we have to cut the circuit. We have to break the circuit. So over validate. I know you're really, really suffering and one and done. I'm going to help break the circuit. Those would be the five tips that I would use. Amazing. That was great. That was so good. Thank you. So, so, so good. This is going to help so many people because I just think people have such a, you know, differing opinions about what OCD is. Definitely. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. It's hard. It's there's so many people who come to treatment. They don't even they doubt that they even have OCD, but they like right. have like instinct. You know? Yeah. For stay with the thought, play with the thought. By the way, sometimes I'll use this. So I'll say like make the thought bigger to make it smaller. So unless in case you want that, like I say that all the time. So make the thought or fear bigger to make it smaller. I love it, that. It resonates with people, adults, kids, anyone, because Again, there's such an instinct to shrink it, but sometimes you have to really make it bigger to embrace it in all its glory. And then a lot of it falls away. I love that. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was so helpful. And uh, I'm excited for our learners to hear from you and learn from you and just to really kind of debunk so many of the myths about OCD and for people to realize that help works. And it can be fun. (laughs) Definitely can. Thank thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Thanks for listening to You Ask, We Answer, a co-production between PsychHub and the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry, made possible by HCA Healthcare. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to the PsychHub YouTube channel, where you can watch shorter animated video episodes of You Ask, We Answer. And don't forget to like or subscribe to the show wherever you're listening. If you'd like to submit a question or topic, please do so by emailing us at podcast at psychhub.com. HCA Healthcare, a leading provider of healthcare services, is committed to improving more lives in more ways. Every day, more than 275,000 HCA Healthcare colleagues work together to positively impact patients, each other, and local communities. With more than 230 behavioral health programs across a connected network of treatment centers, HCA Healthcare is in a unique position to make a difference in the lives of those with mental illness and related disorders. Thank you.